here at uh, Sacra 2017 in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. Um, this is Alex Cummings again here talking with um, scholars, historians, other authors about their recently published books and their um, you know cutting edge research. And we have a real treat today uh, because it's uh, in a sense research about research. Hi, my name is Ladale Winling. I'm an assistant professor of history at Virginia Tech, and. Uh, just published a book called Building the Ivory Tower, um, Universities and Metropolitan Development in the 20th Century, kind of about the role of universities and um, as, as urban developers, how essentially the expansion of the research mission and enrollment of universities and higher education over the 20th century kind of leads to a physical expansion and kind of tensions, if not conflicts, over redevelopment and what kind of a new vision for uh, um, universities look like in cities. Wow, yeah, this is uh, obviously something that I'm quite um, interested in myself, um, something I've been thinking about for a while, so I'm really excited that the book uh, has come out. It literally just came out yesterday, yeah. I think, yep. right? absolutely. Um, so it's very new and very fresh. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like, you know, universities have not gotten, you know, historically a lot of attention from historians and planning scholars. Uh, there have been some, you know, obviously um, people like Margaret O'Mara have sort of broken ground in this area. We've had studies of Silicon Valley. Um, there's been some new work recently. Uh, there's a really great article by Andrew Simpson a few years ago about mm-hmm. uh, eds and meds in uh, Pittsburgh, I yeah. think. Yep. And, um, you know, this whole eds and meds thing has been touted as sort of the, um, you know, the, the, the cure-all for, uh, you know, urban economic development, um, but there are a lot of uh, intricacies and uh, potential shortcomings that come with that. So um, why don't, tell us what are some of the conflicts that arise in, in, in your story? Uh, the way I kind of think about it is, and I think, I think you're quite right about the lack of attention that historians, especially urban historians, have given to um, <laughs> institutions of higher education. I mean, uh, the the book's called Building the Ivory Tower because we have this trope that universities are kind of separate from the broader society in some fashion, that they don't get involved in politics, that they don't get involved and or shouldn't get involved in, um, you know, some of the kind of messy realities of life. But, oh, like, it's not true, right, essentially. And, um, you know, kind of moving beyond that trope I think is key and um, you know additionally I think reckoning with some of the costs and trade-offs of investment in higher education (laughs) institutions the way I kind of phrase it is that universities a way to think about um, university expansion is that you know everybody's on board, civic leaders, national leaders, you know, the American population is on board with more education, more economic development from universities, more um, degree holders in metropolitan areas, except the people who actually live around universities. And the last thing they want to see is their local institution grow because they know that um, they're the ones who are going to bear the kind of cost of university expansion and have, you know, over generations. Um, because, you know, say universities, they pursue, they, they, they're tasked with international and national goals that come at the expense of the local. 
and the way I phrase it is that they're working to advance knowledge at the expense of their neighbors. So in places like um, the, the Hyde Park and Woodlawn on the south side of Chicago, after the kind of amazing contribution to the end, the conclusion of World War II, um, the, the University of Chicago was kind of primed to be the leading institution of higher education in the United States, and they felt um, you know, trapped and under siege by this demographic wage of the Great Migration and African-American neighborhoods kind of expanding beyond the Black Belt. And so um, leaders, administrators like Julian Levy worked to, um, worked to marshal slum clearance, urban renewal policy, as well as philanthropic capital to kind of create an isolated island that was safe, uh, almost like an an urban but suburban kind of white upper middle class island in Hyde Park, you know, amidst this kind of like wave that's washing over the south side of Chicago. And so, you know, there's, you know, property owners and like members of the community in Woodlawn, Hyde Park alike who, you know, really suffer. And the strategy was from the University of Chicago in this case to um, you know, their strategy explicitly was to kind of create blight and to extract value from the local environment so that they could kind of take it over and deploy it in like a newly re-envisioned expanded campus in the 1950s and 1960s. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, the, you know, sordid history of Columbia University, uh, which has always had tense relations with its neighbors and also built a campus that was basically designed as maybe not a suburban campus by any means but a you know concrete fortress um, of marble and um to keep uh, out the neighbors and that uh, story has evolved even further in recent years we won't necessarily go into that but i guess my question is um how, how is this different from other um stories of urban renewal gone horribly wrong that we are familiar with and are universities different from other types of developers other types of entities that you know develop real estate and change mm -hmm. change the urban landscape um so one way in which universities are different is that um you know at the kind of end of the 19th century, the universities and colleges were seen as just kind of one of many kind of options for um, promoting economic development, right? Whether it was a factory, whether it was like a commercial um, retailer or something like this, you know, universities were not special. But one of the ways that things have changed over the course of the 20th century is that universities, you know, they don't go out of business. They just keep growing. You know, they have only yeah. become bigger and more powerful. And they have kind of loyalty uh, among their alumni and among their kind of like um, regional supporters that, mm. you know, that is totally unlike any other um, you know, kind of private institution. Any kind of business or exactly. institution. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's one way that they're different. And, you know, in another way, you know, they, they kind of marshaled this, this guy, Julian Levy, but a number of other leading kind of a coalition of urban institutions. 
in the 1950s actually wrote urban renewal legislation. <laughs> you know, essentially, they're not just drawing upon it, they're creating it. The Housing Act of 1959 created this program called Section 112 credits that was used to um, allow universities to kind of expand um, it when, they're, when they're kind of in built-out urban environments. Basically, it, any, in, uh, any investments that they made that were near and consistent with a municipal urban renewal plan would create this series of credits whereby the um, city urban renewal administration would get money that they could devote elsewhere. And so this really empowered higher education institutions. And in the instance of the University of Chicago, um, they entertained, they first created this program, and then they entertained a proposal from the Sears Roebuck Corporation that wanted to um, facilitate urban renewal in their kind of Lawndale um, area near their corporate headquarters. So what they um, proposed, Sears proposed giving $2 million to the University of Chicago to spend in Hyde Park and Woodlawn, which would create $6 million of credits from the federal government, uh, which would be a transfer from Washington to Chicago. And then the city of Chicago could devote that anywhere. It didn't even have to be in the south side of Chicago. And so the deal that they tried to strike was for $2 million donation, they could get $6 million of federal money that would then be used on urban renewal kind of around their headquarters. And um, like so essentially $6 million of urban renewal for a $2 million gift. And wow. that didn't, that didn't um, come about, but it was very seriously considered. And it would have been consistent kind of with this program that a that university administrator had created. Wow, yeah, those are those are excellent points. Um, and trying to understand how a university is different from a private corporation or even a hospital or other kind of institution. Um, but I, th I think I heard you say that they intentionally created blight? Yes, absolutely. What does that mean? Um, uh, again, on the, the south side of Chicago, but not only, a number of institutions. So they created, through the Association of American Universities, this coalition in the 1950s to kind of share ideas and strategies. So Columbia was involved, Penn was involved, Chicago was involved, a number of city universities. And um, essentially what they did was they took this kind of emerging um, philanthropic philanthropic capital that came out of capital campaigns, they bought up properties in their neighborhoods and they let them deteriorate. And so um, the uh, Illinois Institute of Technology in kind of Bronzeville was one of the first to do that. That was a model for the University of Chicago, which, you know, was only too happy to raise money in a capital campaign, buy buildings, and then they would kind of sit on them or they would use that to facilitate um, segregation. Basically, they would um, only allow, in some cases, um, like white students or white neighbors to live there, and they would kind of discriminate. Um, but in other areas, in the Woodlawn area, which was a, a predominantly African-American neighborhood, they would buy and sit on properties, let them deteriorate. They work with city administrators for low-code low compliance and inspection so that um, Basically, uh, you know, the, the neighborhood become, would become blighted and then primed for urban renewal um, redevelopment. Wow, that is uh, profoundly devious. Um, I, I'm kind of curious about some of the economic and other economic impacts. I mean, um, 
universities and hospitals or nonprofits, and how does that um, you know affect the tax base? How does that affect cities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the closer we get to the present, the kind of uh, more significant the impact of um, uh, both private and public university institutions um, not having to pay taxes because while universities are kind of expanding, if it's university kind of owned property, um, then it's tax exempt. And so this in some ways starves municipalities of tax base. And so um, particularly in kind of mid to s- mid-sized and small cities, um, you know, um, city administrations really feel this. And the, the kind of burden falls on the kind of existing, the extant homeowners, business owners, and to kind of pick up that tax base to, uh, f- to pay for like fire, police, rescue services. And, um, you know, there's several kind of policy workarounds. Many cases, municipalities have tried to, um, have instituted, for example, like local income taxes as a way to kind of counter that, uh, basically make up for that loss of tax base. Because, you know, while universities in many cases are significant engines of economic development uh, that's not always kind of reflected in in um, local municipal tax bases it seems perverse that a city would be wanting to cooperate in you know basically um, shutting down productive property tax sources just for the sake of creating blight uh, you know, in um, you know, cities do a lot of kind of perverse things. You know, I could we we, we can say that the kind of cultural import of higher education, you know, shapes this kind of um, calculation that policymakers make. Um, at the University of California, Berkeley, before he was president, Clark Kerr um, made a an address to the. Berkeley City Planning Council, and he said, "Listen, we're taking on global issues here. The last three elements of the on the periodic table have been discovered at Berkeley. Like we <laughs> cannot be bothered with you know worrying about disturbing you know a, a handful of property owners and landlords here when we're trying to kind of provide for the entire world." Um, how nice of them. It's, it's you know, kind of understated humility. Um, <laughs> but, you know, municipal leadership, you know, they pursue the Olympic Games, right? They kind of invest in um, all right. sorts of, you know, kind of non-productive enterprises that have a great deal of headline value and may kind of broadly contribute to like an idea of a city as some kind of destination or that is one that is growing, but that comes with really significant drawbacks. And, you know, the calculation is somewhat different for universities, but, you know, they've, they've, you know, city leaders are not always rational actors. (laughs) I've noticed. Um, So where does this leave us? Because like you were saying, um, in America, especially, we believe in ed- education as a paramount virtue. You can never have enough education. Education is, is the engine of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I've always been fascinated by universities as like the quintessential knowledge economy institution. Mm -hmm. Like it produces and disseminates knowledge. That's like one of the main fun. It's one of the institutions that does that mm -hmm. very specifically more than a, 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 a tech company or mm -hmm. a hospital or some other kind of mm -hmm. institution. So, I mean, we all think knowledge is good. It's a knowledge-based economy. Mm -hmm. um, where does this leave us when we have these institutions, which everybody thinks are really important mm -hmm. and, and valuable in some significant ways? But then there's all these sort of uh, I don't, negative externalities doesn't seem like the right uh, term, but there are these ramifications yeah. that are unequitable. So what do you do? Um, another thing I think that's kind of interesting um, about universities to employ a theater metaphor is I feel like they're both actors, kind of corporate bodies that take these actions, but they're also in some ways stages for um, a wide array of groups, students, faculty members, staff, um, kind of local local constituents um, to kind of come together and debate and in some cases, right, like draw upon the knowledge created by universities and to oppose the kind of corporate actions of universities. So Right, throughout the community, the, the institutions that I study, there's a number of key student protests where, you know, in fact, because of their classroom education, students take the ideas very seriously and then um, hold to account or oppose, like with their bodies and with their rhetoric, um, <laughs> oppose university actions, you know, whether it is policy or whether it is development. So, Something like the free speech movement is a clear example of this in Berkeley in 1964, where one of the participants said, you know, we had been learning about, you know, democracy and freedom and liberal ideals. And, you know, it wasn't until now in the course of these protests that I felt that these actually had meaning. And um, in in Chicago, um, uh, there's a there's a kind of famed protest in January of 1962 where um, man who's now um, senator from Vermont Bernie Sanders um, helps lead uh, occupation of the administration building and the um, university real estate office because they've discovered its segregation practices um, but there's instances in universities all across the country up to the present where I think, you know, there is a pathway for members of university communities to, like, from within, kind of oppose and try to work and change the, the rhetoric to change the development policy um, and to change the kind of trajectory of, um, like, university, university development and university kind of community relations. It's not to say all university community relations are bad, but um, this knowledge creation, you know, in some ways empowers universities to, you know, redevelop, to gentrify, to create blight, but it also empowers members of the community to oppose that, and I think in really meaningful, meaningful ways. And so, you know, I would actually say, you know, student, faculty, protest, I think is one of the ways that um, you know that that is in some ways like uh, uh, like both allowed and um, facilitated by this knowledge institution. Right. So, is this uh, book urban history? 
I, in some ways, it, yes. I mean, I came to it, came to the topic because of my interest in cities. Um, you know, I mean, I looked at cities and kind of, as we discussed earlier, thought like, why, like, why are universities not part of urban history? And this was even before Margaret O'Mara's book had come out. So it seemed like, I mean, there was even less scholarship. Now, her work was really important for me and for anyone who kind of studies, studied this kind of topic. And, um, you know, I think it's an increasingly important line of scholarship in urban history because, like, universities are located in places. They want to project themselves as global or national institutions, but their effects are intensely local, and in some ways they are a key urbanizing institution where they bring more people together, where they, um, you know, increase economic activity, and they increase kind of cultural, intellectual, and economic relationships, you know, doing all of the things that we kind of expect happen in cities. Think globally, act locally. In some right? fashion, yeah. Yeah. There we go. The book is uh, Building the Ivory Tower, Universities and Metropolitan Development in the 20th Century. Uh, it's just come out from a great press, uh, Penn, and uh, it's going to be a big contribution to uh, a really uh, rapidly evolving and developing um, literature within urban studies, within urban history. Uh, check it out. Thank you, uh, Professor Winling, so much for taking the time to sit down with us, and uh, we're really excited about the work. Well, it was really my pleasure. Thank you. Man, I've done so many